0: I'm Michael Shoulder and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations a podcast for the insanely curious a masterclass on writing for children and adults from one of the most popular and prolific writers of young adult fiction.
1: I'm constantly stealing time and that's what I'm trying to teach kids all the time is to go through your day don't block out 2 hours of writing here or 2 hours over there. Block out 15 minutes. Just
0: 15 minutes. Author Jack Gantos joins me to discuss his latest book, Writing Radar, using your journal to snoop out and craft great stories.
1: I think one of the things that happens when people get ready to write and something in them says, go, and then you're waiting for that first thought. Well, when I open my journal and pick up a pen, I have pretty much the belief that the first thing I write will not be the first sentence of a finished book. The first phase for me is just creating and dumping lines on a page. So what happens to me is this. I just want to riff.
0: first time I had Jack Dantos on Wavemaker Conversations in March, we spoke about his memoir, A Hole in My Life, about the events that led to his terrifying two years in prison.
1: And The biggest cop I'd ever seen came, handcuffed me, took me into a holding cell with all the other people that had been given time. And I walked into a room full of everybody that I'd avoided all my life. I weighed probably 125 pounds and every head in that room turned around and looked at me. And I thought, this is when you really have to hunker down and figure
0: out what to do with your life. That was 45 years and more than 50 books ago. Now with his latest work, Writing Radar, Jack Gantos is empowering kids from all walks of life and the rest of us to become the best writers we can be. And it starts with carving out that 15 minutes a day to keep a journal and riff. Here I am in Jack Gantos' apartment in Boston. What area of Boston is it again? This is the south end, not to be confused with
1: South Boston.
0: Now you've got this great new book, which is called Writing Radar using your journal to snoop out and craft great stories. Your book is written for young adults. Yes, young
1: adults and young writers. So like in the field, we would start thinking of this book from perhaps third grade on
0: up. Third grade on up. And yet I have to say, as somebody who writes a lot myself, I found it extremely useful because you had so many practical tips, so colorfully illustrated. But I want to start with, there's a story you tell us about when you were in fifth, I think you were in fifth grade, and you were new in school, and you were given an assignment by one of the school administrators to be a respect detective. So what was being a respect detective? This was a great job.
1: I admire this particular principal because she was really really spot on. So I was a new kid a lot at schools. We moved a lot, and I went to 10 different schools. So I was new at this particular school. I did not come in the first day. I was just new. And she called me into her office and just, oh, just sang my praises. We're so happy to have you. But she said, there is something that you can do for me too. She said, well, I have this job and it's called the respect detective. Right away, I couldn't understand what that was. And she said, "There are just a couple things I want you to kind of find out for me. One was that the school bordered a pet cemetery and somebody was stealing all the flowers off of the pet's graves. And she wanted me to catch or find out who that person was. And the other one was, that somebody was sticking a lot of gum under desks and she wanted me to see who that kid was. And when she explained these two tasks, it just seemed like one of Hercules's many tasks, that how was I ever going to, to solve these things? So, you know, I had to puzzle through that. I did find the flower thief, he was the gym teacher. He was stealing the flowers and giving them to it. a female teacher at the school, trying to woo her. I went early in the morning and I, I saw him at a distance. And then I did see a kid sticking gum under, under a desk. And I had to rat them both out in order to get out of this contract that I had inadvertently entered with the principal.
0: And the gum, there was a particular verification that you needed, if I remember the story (laughs) right.
1: Yes, yes. There was some sort of dental impression. She had some of his gum already. She could see the teeth marks. Now she wanted me to catch the kid doing it, get that piece of gum, and then she could match it and then locate
0: the kid. You could have been the greatest detective. I mean, we could have solved the gum under the desk problem once (laughs) and for all. We could have.
1: We could have. But it put me in a, you know, it's a perilous position. You're new at a school, you're trying to make friends, and at the same time, you're walking around snooping on everybody, which was kind of a double-edged sword because for me, snooping on people is really what I'd like to do.
0: And again, the title of your book, Writing Radar, Using Your Journal to Snoop Out and Craft Great Stories. There's a line in your book that you said today, and this is one of the reasons I've come here, to your house. Today, I have more than 200 journals packed away in boxes. You have one box or two boxes I see in front of me. Yes. From what ages? From about fifth grade. I do have a first grade writing book, but
1: it's mostly uh, little assignment writing. In this, these are recent year journals. This is uh, 1972. So 1972, what happened in 72? 1972 is when I started college, so I had been
0: paroled. How many people, I ask the audience out there, how many people do you know could open up a journal and say, oh, this is from 1972, that was right after I was paroled? How many people can utter that sentence? If you want to find out the story that led to the prison sentence and was followed, thank goodness, by the parole and the writing career... Look at my first conversation with Jack Gantos, which was posted back on March 1st of this year, 2017. So we have this entry from 1972. What is the entry? Just parole, what was on your mind? What were you noticing?
1: What I notice first off is that the writing looks to me like my old high school writing. And I'm writing with ballpoint pens. I liked writing with fountain pens when I was a kid, but I didn't have them with me. When I got out of prison, I didn't really own anything. And I came to Boston, and I started at Emerson College in 1972 to get my BFA in creative writing. So I guess I'm talking about high school here. I drank a half-fifth of vodka each morning on my way to school. It was the cause of several car accidents that injured many people. The principal often called me into his office to explain my odd and often insulting behavior in the classrooms. I explained as clearly as possible that I was bored, that I found my education vacuous, the people around me insipid. I disliked doing everything I did. I was miserable with my surroundings and myself. And the only joy I received was in that absolute misery because I always dressed nicely and had always earned excellent marks. The disciplinary system went around me and I was allowed to drink on.
0: It's almost like you're the writing equivalent of the great athlete. Yes, I was. People excuse so many mistakes when it comes to the great athletes in their midst. It's true. I mean, I did have good
1: manners. When I went to school, I wore a jacket and tie. I wore wingtips. You know, it was like a navy blue jacket, club tie. And, you know, I, I down to three tall boy Paps Blue Ribbons and a half a bottle of vodka and smashed my way down to the parking lot.
0: And so let me ask you, right before we, we started recording, you said the diaries will one day be left to your daughter, correct? Yes. Well, in on, on one sense, the idea that you think your diaries are so valuable mm-hmm. that you would want to leave them as a prized possession to your daughter, on the one hand, Maybe a lack of humility, but maybe not. Maybe you just want your daughter to know you better than she could possibly in just living with you. I think there's a certain amount of that to it. A certain amount of? Of,
1: of, of wanting to be known. I've been married since 1989 to my wife, Anne, And one of the great things about a long marriage is that you're very thoroughly known. You're very deeply known. Now some people might find that off-putting, they don't want to be known, they want to have a certain secret closet of themselves within themselves within themselves, a kind of maze on the inside. And I think I grew up with that maze on the inside and I think the unfolding of the self and being known to other people, allowing myself to be known has been a great benefit to me as a person and I always feel deeply loved the more deeply known I am. So by passing along the journals that way then you would in fact allow somebody into your deeper
0: thoughts how did you find the power within yourself it was a pretty brutal experience being in prison how did you find the kindness in yourself given your troubles given the hole in your life in the earlier years
1: for me i'll build up to that my life my early childhood is touched by I wouldn't say littered by, but really touched by these wonderful moments of random acts of kindness. The teacher that sees that you're a new shy kid that likes books and that maybe gives you a notebook or gives you a a book or allows you to hang out at the library half the day. Would I, in turn, then, have my own series of random acts of kindness and I have to say yes and no I mean I could look back many times as a child and think oh my god I was harsh and I was ugly and I did not reciprocate that kindness and I backed off and or I joined the wrong group the tough group instead of the nice thoughtful group even though I was a nice thoughtful kid I wanted to be with the tough kids
0: so have you become do you think more actively kinder over the years yes I actually do. (laughs) I do. Would you rather be known as the nicest guy or the greatest author? Oh.
1: Oh. 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 Do you have to slice it that way? Um, (laughs) The greatest author, the nicest guy. I don't know. What do you want on your tombstone? I think I'd still go for the author. I know that reveals the crappiness inside me, but... (laughs) But I would go for it. That's what I've wanted all along. I am a nice guy, and I've become nicer because I go to schools and I work with kids all the time. I go into about 40 schools a year, and I go into prisons and work with young men in prisons as well, and young women too. But it's going into schools and working with kids and showing kids really how to write, Helping them get set up, helping them get their journals set up, helping them see how you would storyboard out a picture book, helping them find beginnings, middles and ends, helping them get over the frustration of not feeling as though a story is just not rolling out of them like the literature that they read. They read a good book and they think when they open a book they're supposed to write just like a book is, is written. and. My God, you know, nobody does that. Nobody just knocks out a book one times it. You know, to to tell them that, you know, there's 50 to 100 drafts to talk about your characters and your setting and your problem and, and framing that problem and articulating it and then going into the action and how the action moves the book forward but reflects back on the theme and the problem and the characters and how all of that builds up.
0: Thomas Friedman, the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times, has a new book. Uh, The whole theme of the book is that we are living in an unprecedented age of accelerated change, that the pace of acceleration of change in our world today on the environmental level, on the economic level, and on the cultural level is unprecedented. And so very often he'll be waiting for somebody to interview at a coffee shop, wherever it is, and they'll be 10 minutes late and they'll always apologize. And he he sort of started feeling that actually you did me a favor because I had 10 minutes of stillness, of quiet to just gather my thoughts.
1: Well, when somebody's late to me, I've already anticipated it. In fact, I arrive early and I intentionally arrive early because I know I'll take out my journal. I can catch up on On today's thinking and write it all down so I'm constantly stealing time and that's what I'm trying to teach kids all the time is to go through your day don't block out two hours of writing here two hours over there block out 15 minutes just 15 minutes
0: I just want to stop you at this this idea of stealing time and just taking 15 minutes whether it's writing in your journal but let's say it's reading Let's say we're taking kids of all ages, all the way through high school, even into college and saying, you know what, let's not talk right now about blocking out an hour or two hours. Let's talk about what you can accomplish if you just have 15 minutes to pick up that book that you're reading and being mindful of the fact that slow reading is more enriching than fast reading. Tell me what we can do with that 15 minutes. What
1: I think first off is, is this, is that 15 minutes of reading means you're reading for yourself. What you're reading for is to burrow down into that text and become part of it. So that you're snaking through that text as you're reading it and you're seeing each word and you're imagining each word in your mind so that you are using the text to launch all the power of your imaginative ability to turn that text into your own tapestry of language and experience. Now when you do that, then you have this very rich canvas to step into as yourself and then you begin to say, am I like this? Do I feel this way? Do I think this is beautiful? Do I not understand this? So then you can ask yourself any bucket of questions that go with that. So I like a good slow read because I want to know how it's affecting me. And so what happens is that every time I read so slowly I feel as though I'm beginning to perceive and understand how it is that a million people can read the same book And get a million different experiences from that same book. And that you are constantly creating a unique text of the mind, which is yours and yours alone. It may be fleeting, but it's the most pleasurable lozenge of reading that you will ever have. Reading slowly means that you just enjoy the meal that much more. Instead of wolfing your food down, you just take your time. You know if you cut a piece of something delicious into smaller bites then you get that many more delicious moments than if you just take one big bite and shove it down your throat. And that's what I want people to take 15 minutes. Let's move to writing radar.
0: (laughs) Yes. Because really, I I feel more empowered as a writer myself. Now, having read that book, which was designed for younger people, but it's really helping me a lot. So you talk about how the structure of a story, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, if you have the structure in place and you follow that structure and remind yourself to stay with that structure, it will allow you to be actually more creative than confined, I think
1: one of the things that happens when people get ready to write or when they sit down to write and they open a notebook and they pick up a pen and something in them says, go, and then you're waiting for that first thought. Well, when I open my journal and pick up a pen, I have pretty much the belief that the first thing I write will not be the first sentence of a finished book. Mm-hmm. So what happens to me is this. I just want to riff. I just want to get down as many good thoughts as possible. And I'm not worried about how tangled they look, how out of place they look, how absolutely confusing they look because I know that I'm going to do drafts and in those drafts, there's going to be a structure draft. And by structure, we just know this loosely and we know it I think we know it by gut. We just know it by talking. We know it by telling a story at the dining room table, which is basically beginning, middle, and end problem, action, solution. Now, there's a lot of holes in that, but what it does essentially do is it captures a sequence of an unrolling of a story so that when you're writing, if you just write randomly and know in the back of your mind that you're going to do a second draft, you're going to do a third draft. So in the beginning, you're just randomly writing. Second draft... You go through that randomness and you go, oh, this is a beginning piece. This is a middle piece. This is an ending piece. And you begin to sort out everything that takes place. And so I think that there's always this sense that creativity and structure are mortal enemies, which is not true. And the other thing is that structure can can confine your story. And
0: that's not true either. Except what I'm learning from you now and it's completely liberating and will be to a lot of people listening is that that first phase of the writing as long as you know yeah. that you're in for a lot of revisions and you must commit yourself to a lot of revisions the first phase does not require structure at all.
1: No. The first phase for me is just creating and dumping lines on a page that pretty much seem like they go together but you're not quite sure. And then you might run out of sentences on a particular topic or a particular description. And then you just start another one. And then you just
0: start another one. Just get it down on paper. Whatever inspires you, whatever strikes you as meaningful, just get it down.
1: Yes. Writing is always kind of one of these things that people just want to knock off, get it over with. It's like a toothache. Pull them all. You know, I don't care. Give me dentures. And for kids I think what they don't realize with writing is that they are an important aspect of the writing itself. If you don't read slowly you don't see yourself in the book and if you don't write with adding who you are into what you're writing then you're missing how what you're thinking about is changing you and how you may change somebody else through the writing. So I just want people to sort of slow down a little bit, but I also want them to to realize that when when you're setting up a journal, you wanna set it up so that that 15 minutes is productive. So if you just get a blank journal, for me as a kid, right away I draw my house. I draw every room in the house. I would draw all the objects in the house. And then I would start looking for where there were arguments in the house, where there were good moments in the house, where I read in the house, where I ate in the house, where anything happened, somebody came and visited, and I'd just make lists and lists. And then I would go through that and have that inside the journal. And so when you get your journal set up with maps and lists of possible story ideas, things that are important to you, vocabulary words, maybe lists of books that you've read, And then when you open it for that 15 minutes, the book itself is offering you a pathway to get started. It's putting you first in your writing life. And you begin to locate things that are important.
0: I actually took down a quote from your book, Writing Radar, where you synthesized what you just said, drawings anchored my thoughts. Yes. So you're saying when you open that diary, that journal, Mm -hmm. Before you even write down what you observed or what made sense to you or something meaningful, you want to give it some kind of a structure that will then trigger the observations.
1: Yes, you would. The other line that I think is probably pretty common and that is seeing is believing. You know, I grew up with seeing is believing. So... In Writing Radar, I'd have in there a very detailed map of one of my neighborhoods, one of my favorite neighborhoods, because there was just so much going on in it. And I remember as a kid, starting off going, nothing interesting ever happens to me, and then drawing the whole neighborhood, all the characters, everything that happened, and then it was like, oh, my God, I'm so wrong. But in this case, when you draw, you can see... What you see, you can focus on. And that's kind of like a, a punctum point. That's the point where you puncture
0: a story. It's the moment where you're inspired. Wait a second, I just saw you, you picked up another, another bag with, oh. with something in it.
1: Well, so this is my, like a daily bag. If I have to run out the door and grab one thing, I have this little bag. It's probably, oh, eight inches by five inches. It zips on the top. I always have two fountain pens. One's in red, one's in blue. I love them. One's medium point, one is extra fine. Great Japanese pens. And then this is my little daily journal. It's probably what, three,
0: three and a half five.
1: inches by three and a half inches square, or four yeah. by four maybe. So this this would be a daily journal.
0: Very tiny book with very tiny writing Read me something from it. Okay.
1: I'm writing a book. I'm just at the very beginning stages, and the title of the book is called The Autobiography of a Sister as Written by Her Brother. <laughs> and this is just a little riff right out of it. This is a true story about my sister, but I never told it to anyone. And and even now, I've changed her name. She was very wise and thoughtful. And it wasn't that she was simply smarter than me. It was that she was more empathetic. She had that gift, and it was extraordinary. The gift of empathy. Too little, and at times, dangerously too much. The belief that everyone had a perfect place in life. Now, this is me in contrast to my sister. So I believed in the British beehive structure. The king, the queen, and everyone had a perfect place in life. I'd gone to British schools in, in the beginning. So my whole thought about life was structure and order. But my sister never looked at life like that. My sister always looked at life through a very empathetic lens. What people were on the inside, and I was always judging people by how useful they were on the outside. So when I'm writing about my sister, what happens is that she begins to use me to transform the world, and she does this in various ways. And so this is part of that text. Now, as I was saying before, you open your journal, you write for 15 minutes, I have no idea where this is going to fit in the book, whether any of these sentences will ever go in to the book in this form. Some of the concepts will make it in the book. Others will get kicked out. But if you don't riff like this, take 15 minutes and write two
0: pages, you'll miss it. And yet that book is, it's a little book, but it's jam-packed with tiny, tiny letters, tiny writing.
1: You see all these little tags that I have? I have tags on things. Little Post-its. Little Post-its and tags that stick out of the diary. And they're all color-coded. A yellow tag could be dialogue, a blue tag could be theme, a red tag could be action.
0: So, so this is adding layers to your structure. So when you start writing, as you told us, you know, don't worry about the structure, just get it down. But then you pretty soon have to impose some kind of order on it or it'll be lost forever.
1: Yes. You need to at least keep it gathered right. together so that when you do start rewriting that you have that material to riff on. And one of the great things about it is that one or two sentences can open an entire chapter. It could just spark that much. So these little moments, these little 15-minute moments, when I'm just writing randomly about this particular book, become very valuable. Because they're not attached to anything. They're just little lily pads of uh, thought in the whole structure of the book.
0: Do you get so hooked on those 15 minute periods that you find you have multiple 15 minute periods a day?
1: Well, yes, this is sort of like the 15 minutes between this and that. After I gave up my, I was a tenured creative writing teacher at Emerson College, and then once I gave that up, then, you know, and I was taking on novels, then you really get yourself muscled
0: up, you know, for, Not just 15 minutes. All right, so now let's come. Last question. I want to go back to your story and then the structure that you've set in place because one of the stories that you used as an example for how you create a structure had to do with who was that family who lived near you and you were a follower. Oh, the Deal family. The Deal family. Tell us about how your experience as a follower with this kid who had a good nose for trouble
1: we called the father the big deal and then there was the bad deal who was like the kid that i wanted to be He was just a tough kid He was just a typical tough kid greasy red hair combed back one of those kids that sort of had a beard when you thought wow you know i've not even had a whisker and he's got a beard (laughs) you know like how old is he really is he 17 and i'm 13. and uh, he always had a knife He had a black leather jacket in Florida, which, you know, just seemed wild. He wore shoes with horseshoe cleats on them that would clank, clank, clank down the street. Or if he scraped them across the asphalt at night, sparks would fly off of them. I mean, this kid was just so miles ahead of me. And I was just like an unformed amoeba compared to this guy. So I wanted to be like him. And we loved these kinds of dangerous games that he would play. And he would think them up. He made an electric chair, he took a chair, put chicken wire on it, and then he had electrical leads to a, remember Lionel trains? And you always had the transformer, you yeah. know, to make the train go faster or slower. And he put the leads on it. And, uh, and to make the electricity really get you good, he poured water on the seat. So you'd sit on it and he'd turn the switch on the Lionel train transformer and you'd get that little tickling a uh, feeling of electricity going through your bottom and body. Zzz, zzz, and he'd turn it up, zzz, and then he'd like boom, turn the whole switch over to 100 percent. And You'd just go blasting out of the chair, <laughs> and you know you'd roll across the ground, and then you'd laugh. Somehow he never really blasted himself. You know he was always the major manipulator. And I, again, I did all of this because I just so adored him.
0: And your parents, did they get wind of this?
1: my mom did in the funniest possible way and I love this so my mom came in my bedroom one night she was doing laundry I had like Sears you know white boy jockey shorts and she just came in with a very sorrowful look on her face but very sincere and she held up my jockey shorts which had the same chicken wire pattern burned into the seat of my underwear and and she said she said I don't know what you've been doing, but I'm begging you, please stop it. (laughs) That's all she said. But really, I did stop it because I could see that it was causing her such emotional pain that I was somehow hurting myself and this was gonna lead to no good.
0: And so in your explanation of how to write and writing Radar, that was sort of the setup, the scene, the problem was that you were a follower Oh yeah, and how did that was that, the theme and how did that get resolved in your structure?
1: Ultimately what happened is these games became more and more daredevilish. And at the same time, Gary became meaner
0: and meaner. Gary was the boy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we called him the <laughs> the bad deal. And then I realized that I didn't like hurting people.
0: What what gives me such pleasure is is looking at the trajectory of your life, you ended up resolving in your real life the problem of being a follower by becoming a writer which has in many ways made you a leader.
1: Well, yes. Yes, because people will read your books. You know, you're leading them. But also you lead yourself. And so you have to be able ultimately to be your own leader and your own follower. Nobody's going to do anything for you. Nobody's going to make that book happen. So as a kid, I was much more eager to be just the follower. It's so easy to be the follower. And I never thought I could be a leader until I really started to write
0: books. Well, what a great way to end it. There's your wisdom. Be your own leader and (laughs) your own follower. Yes. Yes. Well, Jack Gantos, I'm sure I speak for more people than myself. My writing radar is definitely uh, sharper. Help me find the vocabulary. You can't say your writing radar is better. That's a weak word. Mm -hmm. Teach me a new word or give me a better word for better my writing radar is far more supportive,
1: far more insightful. I think it really just opens up a window into yourself that begins to make sense.
0: Jack Gantos, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Insane. I like that word. you've been listening to wavemaker conversations a podcast for the insanely curious if you find this podcast enriching even elevating i hope you'll subscribe for free on itunes or podbean or you can go to my website wavemaker.me once you subscribe for free the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer and then every traffic jam every train ride every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.